Hello and welcome to Cutting the Bull and the Post to the Apocalypse. I'm Ben. As always, I'm hanging out with Mike. Hello. And Claire. Hey. Today we're going to do an anthology of The Strange. So this is a mix of stuff that probably wouldn't fill an episode out, but it's still really cool and worth listening to. These little weird tales across the across time the and e space, across the ethos of history mm. and time and space. Yeah, we got a bit of everything into this week, I think. But next week will be the next time you listen to us. We'll be starting our 9/11 series, obviously with it being the 20th anniversary of that. So we're all going to be. I think I've imagined that every single podcast in the world will be doing exactly the same as us. But if you are a returning listener, please do feel free to listen to our version of it. It'll be a big, big series. We've got like our third year in podcasting at this point. Mm, fourth. Fourth? Wow. Four years now, yeah. Four years. So, it's our pretty our biggest special. No pressure. <laughs> Alright, let's thank some new and returning listeners. So, uh, Barcelona in Spain, Karachi in Pakistan, I've been there on Call of Duty, Noyce in Germany, Odenville in Alabama, Leeds in the United Kingdom, Portugalville in Missouri, you're back, Krapina in Croatia, Tullamore, Mumbai, India, Cebu City in the Philippines, Durham and Withnell in the United Kingdom, Manila, the Philippines, a lot of Phillies, Sapporo, Japan. Uh, Johannesburg in South Africa, Chicago, Illinois, Charleston, South Carolina, Stuttgart in Germany, Dudelanger, that's sweet as fuck. I heard that last week, yeah. Yeah, it's still pretty cool though, Dudelanger, Luxembourg, Ashburn, Virginia, Beaverton, Bengaluru in India, welcome back to you, you you're always there or thereabouts, Boardman, Oregon, Roseville, California, Reading in the United Kingdom, Guadalajara, Spain, Madrid in Spain, and Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's all appreciated. Certainly is. Alright, so where should we go with first? Alright. Did you know that for some people the Second World War didn't end? For quite a while. Okay. Because this Japanese soldier kept on fighting nearly 30 years. His name was Lieutenant Onada. That's mad, isn't it? Now, it starts with this guy called Norio Suzuki. He's born in Japan, so he goes off to the Philippines determined to find a man that many have presumed had been dead for years. And that man's name was Lieutenant, Lieutenant, if we were in British about it, it's another Japanese pronounce it, Lieutenant Hiru Anada, an intelligence officer with the Imperial Japanese Army who'd been sent to the island of Lubang in 1944 to hinder an Allied invasion expected to take place in early 45. So what made Suzuki leave his home and trek through the forests of Lubang in search of this particular Japanese soldier? That's because the year was 1974 and Lieutenant Adoda was still stubbornly fighting the Second World War nearly 30 years later. That is dedication. It is. And it gets even weirder. <laughs> it does, it, man, because he refuses to believe. Yeah. For 30 years. He, he yeah. keeps thinking that it's a con from the Allies. It's propaganda. Right? Yeah. To get him to come out and reveal his position and that. And yeah. Surrender. But you can understand his thinking later on because uh, we'll get to it anyway. Born on the 19th of March 1922, Hiro Onada grew up in the village of Kamakawa on the island of Honshu. And like many young men eager to see action, he enlisted in the Imperial Japanese Army in 1940, and he was sent to the Nakano School, 
which is a training facility in Tokyo that specialised in turning out elite commando units. It was here that Anada was taught the art of guerrilla warfare alongside history, philosophy, covert operations, propaganda and martial arts. As I guess it's like samurai school. I mean, obviously the Japanese had like this massive samurai culture, the Bushido, or perversion of the samurai code, the Bushido code. This seems like they're training, like, just kicking out samurais at this point. They're teaching them, like, philosophy and that. And probably doing some poetry, too. It's pretty cool. I've been watching a documentary on samurai recently. Yeah. Still think a knight could take one down, though. I don't. Yeah, well... At the time the war began to turn against Japan, it was decided in December 1944 that Lieutenant Oda's particular skills would be best deployed in the Philippines. As the Americans prepared to invade, Oda landed on the island of Lubang. His orders were simple, sabotage the island's harbours and airstrips to render them, render them unusable to Allied forces. Unfortunately for Inada, the superior officers he made contact with at Lubang had other ideas. They'd need those harbours and airstrips to evacuate their men, they argued. And instead of being allowed to carry out the orders he'd been given in, back in Japan, Anada was instead ordered to help with the coming in evacuation. When invasion finally came on the 28th of February 1945, it wasn't long before most of the Japanese soldiers defending the island had either been killed, captured, or had managed to escape. As he prepared to make his own way off the island, Anada's commanding officer, Major Yoshimi Taraguchi, gave Anada and his last remaining men an order that would change the course of the young lieutenant's life. Taraguchi told Anada he must stand and fight and never surrender. He said, It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. And Anada took him at his word. Fuck. Yep. Japan surrendered on the 15th of August in 1945 after taking two A-bombs and deciding they couldn't take any more. An act that they still... surrendered before? They may have. The myth that America dropped the bombs to knock Japan out of the war is complete false. Okay. It was only done as a show of power to the Soviets when they went to Potsdam. Maybe, but I would. I I still think that if I don't think the Japanese they were they were ready to surrender it and they were ready they, to. They wanted the emperor still. No, they were going to give him a different title. Right. But they did want him immune from war crime charges. Okay. Which he'd have been anyway. And be, apparently, you'd... everybody was pretty much happy with that, but America declined because they wanted to use the bomb. Because they wanted the power. Unconditional surrender. False. You attacked us out the fucking blue. We want you to be humiliated, and that's what you will be. No, most of the generals in that were ready to accept the surrender. Well, that's a different podcast for an entirely different yeah. day. So Japan had surrendered on the 15th of August 1945, and Lieutenant Hiro Onoda did not. He had already taken to the thick forests of Libang with three enlisted soldiers Private Yuchi Akatsu. Private First Class Kinezuchi Kazuka and Corporal Shuli Shimada. They were there to plan uh, to cause as much disruption to the enemy as they could. The thing is, there wasn't any more enemies. Yeah. The first time the four men heard about their country's surrender was in October 1945, when another cell of rogue soldiers hiding out in the mountains showed them a leaflet telling them the war had been over for several months. 
Come down from the mountains, the leaflet implored. A suspicious Arnada dismissed the leaflet, as he did another air dropped over the island which contained an order to surrender given by General Tomoyuki Yashimata of the 14th Area Army. Anada, who had been trained in propaganda, examined the leaflet carefully and declared it a fake. <laughs> he had been given his orders, and as far as he was concerned, no American forgery was going to stop him carrying them out. <laughs> Fucking badass! 30 years? I know! In the jungle? <laughs> well, living always in a cave? Always on edge, yeah, always on edge. Like Rambo. Think, yeah. thing is... Oh, I'll get to it later. When he came out, he still had hand grenades, he had a well-working rifle, all his equipment was maintained, he just looked a bit ragged, because if you were in the same clothes for 30 years, you can't be, on you? Yeah. <laughs> it's mental. So, so and so began many years of guerrilla warfare against Lubang's civilian <laughs> population, its local police force, and several Filipino and American search parties sent out to try and find them. <laughs> The local farmers had little choice but to get used to the idea that a band of Japanese soldiers could suddenly burst out the forest without warning, steal their cattle, burn down their rice silos, set fire to the farms and even shoot them dead. <laughs> what a way to live! Yeah. I mean, normally it used to be wild animals poaching your animals. Well, that's you can deal with a fox. Yeah. Or a bear, but fully armed soldiers could have. Okay, there's four of them, but four armed, four yeah. trained soldiers coming. You're a farmer. You're dead. They could shoot you there and then. Bayonet you. Take you off into the take you off into the woods for some kind of extreme sexual humiliation. Who knows? Who knows? Why aren't these soldiers questioning where other soldiers are? After thirty years. <laughs> they were given their orders, Claire. That was at the orders of the emperor himself. Or well, certainly given in his name. <laughs> but those are the kind of people you want fighting for you. Don't yeah. They're going to carry on for 30 years in the jungle. Yeah, they refuse to believe it's over. Yeah. The way they get him to believe it's over is yeah. so mad, it's unreal. So increasingly suspicious the war might be over, Akatsu, one of, his, one of the soldiers with him, decided to break away from the group in September 1949. He spent six months in the forest on his own before finally surrendering to the Filipinos in 1950s. In 1950, sorry, he was able to give the authorities some information on the group, which led to another airdrop in 1952, where letters and family photos were distributed over the forest. The three remaining soldiers phoned the letters and again dismissed them as fakes. <laughs> For them, every day was World War II, much, much to the consternation of harassed villagers and the police. Mm -hmm. The following year, Private Shimada was shot in the leg during a raid on a fishing village. <laughs> Despite the unclean conditions in which the men lived, Anado was able to nurse his injured comrade back to health. Fucking legend, this guy. He... He's a fucking badass. <laughs> Claire's just shaking her head in disbelief. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was all for nothing when Shimada was shot dead by a search party sent out to look for the soldiers oh, in 1954. Are they doing shooting the people I'm meant to be looking for? Well, they've got it's well, a search party. Well, it, it is a search party, but these guys still think World War II's going on and they're going to yeah. open up on you. So you've got to have a rival with you. You've got to be able to defend yourself. To be fair, it's probably just the farmers sending out a search party to kill them. Yeah, someone's could given, have been. Someone's given the nod to yeah. come on. It's time to get rid of these. Crazy, raided this fucking fishing man. village three times this fucking year already. <sighs> Probably. 
The years rolled on, and in their jungle hideout, surviving on a diet of coconuts, bananas, stolen meat and, stolen meat and rice, Anada and Kazuka managed to miss such minor events as the Korean War, the entire career of the Beatles, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the 64 Tokyo Olympics, the building of the Berlin Wall, the moon landing, most of the Vietnam War. <laughs> wow. And as the 60s gave way to the 70s, the increasingly ragged soldiers carried on with their war. Conditions in the jungle were often unbearable, especially in summer when mosquitoes made their lives a misery. Yet they prevailed, determined to carry out orders given to them 25 years before. In October 1972, a police search party yet again set out to find the soldiers. They encountered them raiding a rice silo, and in the ensuing gun battle, Kazuka was shot twice and killed, and Anado was now totally alone. Did he give up? No. No, no he's got his orders. Mm -hmm. Did he get a football? He did. <laughs> he called it Wilson Sam. <laughs> um, Wilson Sam. The news of Kazuka's death shocked the Japanese authorities. Both soldiers had long been declared dead after the death of Shimada in 1954, and popular consensus suggested it just wasn't simply possible for the two remaining soldiers to still be alive all this time. <laughs> when Kazuka's body was flown back to Japan, it dawned on the authorities that Lieutenant Anada was probably still alive, but how were they going to force him to surrender? I mean, it's fine for 30 years. <laughs> He's been shooting up villages and the police for 30 years. They haven't killed him yet. Fucking badass, this guy. <laughs> so bored with his life in Japan, the adventurer Norio Suzuki become fascinated with this story and, and, and sort of wanted to track him down. He made his way to Lubang Island and began his search incredibly on the 20th of February, 1974. He found him. Fucking hell, stroke of luck, wasn't it? I guess that... Anada knew he was there, saw a fellow Japanese person and was like, alright, what's going on here, kind of thing. Because he'd have known every fucking inch of that jungle along his little routes, wouldn't he? He'd have been there waiting yeah. in ambush, knowing someone was tracking. The guy's really an expert tracker at this yeah. point. In 30 years in the jungle. Yeah, but you might be getting a bit mental. You've probably got a bit mental, <laughs> but you're still like paranoid as fuck, but yet incredibly good, aren't you, in that environment? You know the ground, you know the ground you've won the yeah. war. Yeah, he'd be real sharp. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anada was fully prepared to shoot Suzuki on sight, but luckily he'd done his research on the soldier and said quickly, Anada-san, San, the Emperor and the people of Japan are worried about you. It was enough for Anada to lower his weapon and listen to him. The war had been over 30 years nearly and Suzuki said it was time to come home. And he still doesn't believe him. Of course, this had no impact on Anada whatsoever. He informed the young man that he would only surrender if ordered to do so by his commanding officer. Suzuki headed off back to Japan with a photo of Anada and himself as proof that the old soldier was indeed alive and well. And once the authorities received the news, a search began to track down the man who had given the an order to an odor to stand and fight. Now, by 1974, Major Yoshimi Tanaguchi was living the quiet life of a bookseller. He was rather surprised when the Japanese government asked him to fly to the Philippines so he could relieve a soldier he hadn't seen in three decades of his duty. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's incredible. Yeah, it really is. Taniguchi agreed to go and was flown to Lebang. And on the morning of the 9th of March, 1974, Taniguchi was finally able to fulfill the promise he'd made in 1945 when he met Anadra in the forest clearing and handed over his country's formal order to stand down. Taniguchi said he would come back for him, and he had. It had just taken considerably longer than his five-year estimate. <laughs> I mean, wow. They've got to make a film about that, but I bet they have already, haven't they? There probably is a Japanese film, I'd imagine, and so after 29 years of diligently fighting the Second World War, primarily against the farmers of Lubang <laughs> Island, Hiru Onada finally surrendered. He handed over his Arasaka Type 99 bolt-action rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, his knife and his grenades, and his wiry figure still dressed in his tattered 1940s Japanese army uniform, boarded a plane to Manila where he presented his sword to President Ferdinand Marcos. Marcos accepted the soldier's surrender and formally pardoned him. Which is, I guess, fair enough. <laughs> For Lieutenant Hiru... He's been killing a footload of farmers? Well, I think, well, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. For Lieutenant... Can you punish a man for being dedicated to his cause. But he's blindly dedicated, isn't he? Yeah. He's stupidly dedicated. He is a fanatic. I think that's the word you're looking at oh, here. Yeah. He's a fanatic. And a lot of the Japanese in, in, in the Pacific War shared that, <laughs> shared that mentality. Hence kamikaze pilots. Mm. You know, I've been listening to, a, I've been listening to Dan Khan's uh, hardcore history on the Pacific War. It's like something like, I think it's about 16 hours long, it's in six parts, mm. it's magnificent. It's all just been released, so I'm, I'm going through it again, because bless him, he does his stuff so well, it takes him six months to research an episode mm. and write it and record it, but it's when it is released, it's phenomenal. He really takes you into the mindset mm. of the Japanese military and the, the kamikaze pilots, because a lot of them didn't want to do it. Yeah. They were like, you're just kind of wasting our resources here. You're wasting a plane, you're wasting a pilot. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, times are tough, aren't they? In you get. And they had a, so they, you volunteered, but you were volunteered, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there was a list, and the only two options of the list was eager and very eager. <laughs> But in all fairness, the, I can't remember his name, uh, the admiral who was in charge of it, when it became clear that they'd all failed and Japan was going to surrender, boarded a plane himself, laden with explosives, and set off to find a ship. Sadly, he was shot down before he managed to... Think, but he, he felt it would be hypocritical of him to uh, not do it as he sent all them boys mm. to do it. At least he was game. Yeah, and yeah. if you think about it, that's the the ritual seppuku, isn't it? The whole the samurai yeah. thing—you stab yourself in the stomach, and then someone cuts your head off once mm -hmm. you've suffered a little bit. I guess it's his version of that. Yeah, but still, there's an episode of Kirby Enthusiasm where Larry meets a kamikaze pilot. Or <laughs> who survived? Yeah. Okay. And he's like. He refuses to call him a kamikaze pilot because he survived. <laughs> he keeps questioning him on how he survived. He goes, how did you survive? And he's like, the plane just glided off the top or something. It went into the ocean. I managed to get out and, and survive. And he's like, yeah, 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 
you just thought the last minute you pulled up, didn't you? <laughs> it's like, you know, he's like an 80-year-old Japanese man, proud of his military history and all that. Polite as well, I yeah. imagine. <laughs> Incredibly polite. They are very polite people, yeah. the Japanese. And uh, right at the end, he sees Larry, he's in, an, in his wheelchair, and Larry's at the end of the corridor, and he just sort of fucking goes for it. <laughs> and Kamikaze. And just runs into it. He <laughs> <laughs> pulled up there, motherfucker. <laughs> I love it. Anoda wasn't the last man. There was another guy, Private Teru Nakamura, who handed himself in on the 18th of December, oh, 1974. Jesus. Why aren't we talking about this guy? I don't know, mainly because it's this guy. That, I, don't, I don't know what he was doing, but this guy seems to be more active. Uh-huh. But um, Anoda returned to Japan he didn't recognise when he left in 44. It was an ancient land of paper and wooden houses, and 30 years later it's a land of soaring skyscrapers high-speed trains, a growing electronics industry, and a population that was no longer fanatically loyal to the emperor. You know, he grew disillusioned with this modern version of Japan, as well as with the fame that dogged his daily life. He chose to leave his native land for a second time, this time settling in Brazil, where he became a successful cattle rancher. (laughs) On reading about a teenager who had murdered his parents, Anada chose to return to Japan in 1984, setting up a school for troubled children with his wife Machi, he lived out the rest of his life a rich and successful man, and he died on the 16th of January 2014 at the grand old age of 91. Mm. So it's nice that at least he funneled that murdering into helping out disadvantaged yeah. kids. Because he did kill like 30 people, him and his group, over the 30 years. <laughs> Killed about 30 farmers and policemen. Probably yeah. some came in other years. Most people were probably just like, oh, they're back again, let's get out of here kind of thing. And also, I suppose, you could think they'd be rationing their rounds. I mean, yes, he, he retired, he, he came out of the jungle with 500 rounds, but how long does that last you, really? Mm. You've been paintballing someone else here, surely. Here's 300 rounds the day, you're buying mm. another few hundred, aren't you? Mm. If you were smart, the farmers, they would have like just wore like crosses on them. Because, mm. you know, you can't kill the medics, can you? I don't think the Japanese cared about that in World War II. Oh, didn't they? No, nah, they were... They didn't care about that. Target. <laughs> yeah, they didn't care with the other rifle. No one did, did they? Hmm? No one did. The Germans did. Did they? Yeah, the Brits, the Americans, oh, if no. there was a medic going at the Eastern, you the Eastern shoot Front. You do medic, do you? Hmm? You don't shoot mm. medic. You do if you're Japanese, and you'd probably do if you're, well, a German shooter. Well, the Russian army didn't really have medics, but you do probably if you're <laughs> a... That surprise me. Nah. That really doesn't. They probably did. They just had stretcher bear, because mm. it wasn't someone like the American or British medics. Yeah, it's Which, like Red Alert, isn't it? It's like the Soviets are good. They've got flamethrowers and shit, and, but they've got no medics. No, nah, the Allies have medics. Mm. It's no vintage retro gaming, that yeah. is, Mike. There you go. That's uh, Lieutenant uh, Anada. Last, what, second to last Japanese soldier, but certainly the most badass. So the last one, was he in his group, or was he just super no. self and he didn't, you know, he no. by nobody? I think he was in the other group that were like, and as soon as he realised that he'd surrendered, he was like, all right, fuck it, then I'm the last one now. I guess. But maybe they hadn't been as active, maybe he'd just been living up in the, in the mountains, making a living for himself, and whereas Anard and his boys were still raiding fishing villages. That's mad, isn't it? Because they knew they were there, that was the thing. It's like, oh, gotta be careful. Oh, it's nearly noon. <laughs> And Japanese soldiers could be here any minute, and just a farmer. Yeah. And the sad thing is, he got back to his country and didn't recognise it. 
very difficult. You wouldn't after thirty years, would you? No, No, of course you wouldn't. It's mental. I mean, most of Japan was firebombed, or the major cities, or atomic bombed. The two of the cities. It's probably the closest you get to a time traveller. I guess, in a way, yeah, because I mean, the land. Let's say he went to Tokyo. He left from Tokyo in '44, then. The Tokyo he returned to in 1974 with skyscrapers and electronic billboards everywhere and the hustle and bustle of a major modern city. Yeah, it'd be alien to mm. you, wouldn't it? You wouldn't know what the fuck to do. It's effectively time travel from the 40s to 70s. Yeah. So some jungle in between. Yeah. Oh man, I hope the first thing he did was like, get here some new clothes. <laughs> Just put these on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is called a t-shirt. <laughs> these are jeans. Ah, crazy though. Yep. Alright, well, what's next then? Oof! Oof! Mmm, this one's for you, Ben. Oh, wow. Well, this is, this is pretty, pretty metal. Was ancient China's yellow emperor an extraterrestrial being from Alpha Leonis? Why the fuck not? <laughs> ancient China's yellow emperor is a legendary hero credited with many feats, such as introducing writing and medicine, but despite his contribution to founding the Chinese civilization, there are ancient texts that suggest he wasn't even human at all, but an extraterrestrial being from a star system far away. Yeah! <laughs> Metal! Not glowing eyes. <laughs> Metal, yeah. I hope he has a glowing eyes. Have you fucking seen The Yellow Emperor, Huang Di, lived in the 3rd millennium BC and his rule was traditionally said to have list, have lasted for over a hundred years. Okay, so first of all, third <laughs> millennium BC, that is genius, that is like ancient, that's before the ancient Greeks who we consider ancient. And life expectancy wasn't that much with the... No, no, no. 30? Yeah, probably. The life expectancy in Middle East, medieval England was... Mm, you've got a good chance of seeing 50 if you make it through childhood. So with 3rd millennium BC, my God, you're probably talking like... I bet yeah. he was rating him for 100 years. 35? I don't think he yeah. was... Unless he was just replaced by clones <laughs> or lookalikes. Many inventions are attributed to his genius, including the introduction of wooden houses, the bow and arrow, carts and boats. Well, if he invented a boat, but... Well, Chinese medicine... Chinese medicine and writing. He's also credited as being the first person to mint coins and establish governmental institutions. An epitome of wisdom and understanding, Huang Di was a patron of the esoteric arts and considered a cosmic emperor. Esoteric. Sorry. Cosmic. I'm the cosmic emperor! His rule was a golden age during which he envisioned a perfect kingdom where peaceful inhabitants would live a life of harmony. For someone from 5000 BC, that's quite progressive. 5000 BC? That doesn't even bear thinking about how long ago that is. That's so mental. I said 3000 BC before. Third I think it means 5000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Either this way. is from U- UFOholic.com. As so it's not the best standard yeah. of journalism. I'm, I'm go- I, I think you're doing them a disservice. <laughs> it is said he had vast astronomical knowledge and even possessed advanced technology, such as a cauldron, that he would use to enlist the help of a dragon. (laughs) 
Sweet. Sometimes this dragon is described as having metallic scales and the Yellow Emperor could summon it whenever he pointed the cauldron at a star known as Zhuang Zhuang, I guess. Zhuang Wan? Zhuang Wan. Astronomers have identified this star as Alpha Leonis, located 79 light years from us in the constellation Leo. Hey, 79 light years at the speed of light is still 79 years. <laughs> That's doable. What do you mean? Well, if he lives to 100, if he lives to a couple of hundred years, he spent 79 years getting here, he's ruling for 100. That's if he goes at the speed of light, which we know is pretty much impossible. Well, he's an alien. Anything's possible. According to ancient Chinese myths, the same cauldron could store various types of energy for long periods of time and would show moving images of other dragons flying through unfamiliar skies. Another intriguing object belonging to the Yellow Emperor was his magical chariot called Changhuan. He used it to travel quickly to all corners of his empire, but woe unto him who dared climb aboard without Huang Di's permission. When one of his advisors decided to take it for a spin, <laughs> he returned the same day, but being many years older than he had left. Time dilation. Yeah. Faster than light travel. Oh, it's all coming together. This is pretty fucking cool as well. Just gonna hop on my chariot and go <laughs> go see the far corner of our province. Multiple sources claim that after his hundred years reign ended, the Yellow Emperor simply summoned the metal dragon and ascended to the heavens. Wow. This could be a metaphor for death, or it could literally mean the extraterrestrial Emperor climbed aboard his flying machine, waved goodbye to the subjects he had so grac graciously helped evolve, and went back to his own star system. Maybe. If you, if you went back like a thousand years, you know, I'm going to douse them with my knowledge. They'd be like, oh, wow. Tell us about this electricity. You were like, "Is that work?" You were like, "I don't know." <laughs> I don't know. The TV's work. I don't know. What about irrigation for our crops? I didn't look that up for our cane. <laughs> His birth is said to be an actual descent from the Zhuanyan star, accompanied by a thunderclap on a clear day in the sky. Oh, fucking Mel. The metallic dragon could have been a flying craft similar to the ones we see today and we're left wondering whether UFOs are responsible for the representation of the strongest, wisest, mythical creature in Chinese law. The star Huangdi allegedly came from was held in high regards by many other ancient peoples. Could it have been the place of origin of mankind's civilising heroes? From Gilgamesh to Quetzalcoatl and from... Veracotcha to Osiris. Well, what do you think? You see, this is where it gets interesting because I don't go for ancient aliens. I don't believe the aliens built the pyramids and all that. I don't believe in that. I don't, I, and that's weird coming from me. <laughs> I, I, I just don't. I think. I think I'm, I'm also a humanitarian. I don't see why people couldn't build pyramids if they set their minds to it. Well, we'll come on to that shortly, won't we? Yeah, we will. And I think it insults humanity mm -hmm. to say we couldn't do it, which is we'll get to soon. But did some sort of aliens pop down and give us a nudge in the right direction? Yeah, maybe, maybe. It's a possibility. What if what if one of them was Alexander the Great? What if one of them was this Yellow Emperor? What if one of them was Gilgamesh or Thor? If they were already flying, they would have given us a little bit more than a boat. <laughs> Can't rush us too far ahead. If you'd have dropped an A, if you'd have just, if you were one of these guys, okay, third millennium China, here's an A bomb. 
get on with it. They'd use it. They wouldn't have any of the morals, would they? About the experience. You can't just give someone. You can't just give a civilization technology that's a hundred years ahead because they haven't got the morals to build up with it. You've got to build your morals and ethics up with the tech, which is why the internet was too soon. Well, we haven't done that, have we? No, that's why the internet was too well, we soon. We haven't done that with nukes. Every government would, says they never use them unless in self-defense. So you got that. So it's not used as a first strike. So there's a moral built up. No with it. sane society would have a sword of Damocles hanging over like that. No, they wouldn't. You're absolutely right. They wouldn't. But it's, the, it's the acronym is actually MAD, mutually assured destruction that stops us from killing ourselves. Yep. And it's worked pretty well. <sighs> Only just. Just a There's bit. Been a few occasions. It's coming in episode one day. Actually, is um, times we came close to nuclear annihilation. But now maybe they did point us in the right direction, but I don't think maybe you can... Maybe not a boat, though, because that's age-old, like, fire, you know, it comes, you know... Maybe bows and arrows. You know, what else was there? Maths, writing. Medicine. Medicine. Maybe. No, I believe it's more like they're enlightened beings, human beings, that have reached what is perhaps Nirvana. You got the Buddha, Jesus, this guy. This is before Jesus and the Buddha. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying that. And you have people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King. There's a Gandhi in there. He was banging virgins. <laughs> Allegedly, whatever. Come on. I don't know. I haven't looked into it. No naive argument. <laughs> because he always slept between the two of them as a test to his. Ah, oh, sorry. There's <laughs> a man in he. Eventually, he's gonna crack. So what? You have to be sort of famous or do something really good to be enlightened or you just no you'll have people like elders and like shamans and shit in small tribes and things I'll be famous I'm just picking the famous ones right. can't say Fred the shaman can I, I don't know <laughs> you never heard of Fred the shaman <laughs> you never heard of Fred not the QI shaman <laughs> QI the Q shaman Q shaman no. Q and on shaman Q and on shaman no he's not a, him no no he's, he's just an idiot <laughs> he's like lightened it all you know, like his hat though yeah do like the hat oh I'm not liking it it's good luck mm-hmm. it's a good look but he's, yeah. he's got to be nuts honey. yeah I mean you might dress like that at home but you don't dress like just storming a parliament do you no just wear your fucking V mask and have done with it go retro I, I don't know I like, I like this idea I like it. I'm a fan of it. Nah. Maybe we were just given a few evolutionary nudges along the way. It's possible, but I think probably not. What have you got, Claire, then? Well, we're sort of, sort of linking in with Ben's, really, about the ancient Egyptians and the pseudo-archaeology. And it is pseudo-archaeology. It's absolutely right, it is. The sort of conspiracy that, you know... Aliens built the pyramids mm-hmm. and stuff, but some academics think it's there's like racism behind it. I can believe it. Well, those those brown people living in the desert couldn't have built that, could they? Kind of attitude. Yeah, I suppose there's a bit of that, isn't it? Well, that's it. So, at the ancient site of Hatnub, a quarry in eastern Egypt desert, not far from Pharium. Archaeologists have um, recently discovered a sled-type ramp system used to transport the alabaster blocks. Post holes and ramps with stairs on either side indicate that the contraption allowed Egyptian builders to move heavy blocks up and down the, sli- the steep slopes. Yeah, and that's the thing is that 
It's been theorised for years how they did it with the, with the ramps. They build the ramps around the pyramid, put the blocks in place, and everyone's like, "Oh, but the blocks are so heavy." Yeah. So yeah, but they're not heavy when you got a thousand blokes pushing them. It's hard to imagine a thousand blokes and a lot of you know that I suppose that many people coming together because we've got so much automation. That's now. that's exactly my point. You've you've hit the nail on the head right there. Is that because nowadays we see skyscrapers going up with a couple of cranes and a few people inside or what have you we don't realise the scale of how much it took to build these things we see a skyscraper knocked up in a couple of years these things were taking 30 40 years yeah I don't think we appreciate how long it took we yeah. just think that they just knocked them off at that's the, it like we, the house is over the back yeah. that's it we think of it you know you can build you can have a house up in a month mm-hmm. it might be wired in and everything but as a standard living thing yeah it's, it's a house it's livable in mm-hmm. this is only a tomb it hasn't got to too elaborate you know, and it's taking, and literally the pharaoh comes to power and commissions this. He's like, okay, I'm in power. My first act, build me a tomb. How was it? They did it early on. These things were ready for when they died. They enslaved people, didn't they? It, yeah, they were pay, slaves. Did, did they pay? Pay? No. They paid a lot of people did too. They? they did. There was there was there's proof that these guys who were doing it were skilled oh. builders and engineers. You know, there's always slave labour. Now, whether how much the slave labour that was or whether it was... Probably like 95% slave labour. Paid labour, some of it maybe. But they were, still, they'd have had to be fed and watered enough for them to do their jobs. Yeah. So they would have probably had decent conditions. You can't have someone... <laughs> you, well, you can't have someone pushing rocks up, massive blocks up a ramp all day if they're not strong enough to do it. Well, it depends whether they just want to just, you know, use them till they're dead. Well, it depends on that. Depends. How many you, they got? you see, that depends on your slave income, doesn't yeah. it? You know, we don't know that. Yeah, we don't know that. Mm. But sorry, okay. <laughs> economics, slave economics. How many slaves you got? How many slaves you got coming in? Can we build this pyramid in forty years? <laughs> Can we lose a thousand a day? Who knows? Let's farm the women. Farm the women out. <laughs> Let's produce more boys to, <laughs> yeah. to build. Right, inscriptions have now helped archaeologists from the Institute um, Francis d'Arcologie Orientale and the University of Liverpool to date this groundbreaking technology to a, at least the reign of Khufu, who ruled from 2589 to 2566 BCE. We've got another yeah. letter now. Why did they put the BC in? I don't know. What? Why did they put the E at the end, you mean? Yeah. I don't know about that. No, normally. It's got to be something lying, I don't know what Yeah, of course it is. But any of the listeners you know, please, please tell us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Says we're doing research, you are the researcher, listener. Well, it was a very long time ago. Yeah. Khufu is known as the pharaoh who likely commissioned the building of the Great Pyramid at Giza. Discovery and reconstruction of the ramp allows us to better understand ancient construction techniques. Now, I'm sure I've watched something. Didn't they do something with water at one point? Yeah, I'm sure they had like water-powered like cranes or something like that. You know, like a paddle system. And it sort of pushed the blocks up a up a central sort of like chimney type yeah. thing I've seen on on one of the you know a reconstruction on one of the um, you know discovery channels. Yeah, I, I think we underestimate how clever we've been. I mean, just because we weren't splitting the atom doesn't mean we couldn't build stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, look at the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, I'm going to reel them off, but I mean, like most, yes, the pyramids are still standing. The others were destroyed by conflict or natural disaster. But 
you know, a, a 50 foot tall bronze statue of fucking some Greek god standing over a harbour. So it's pretty fucking metal to me. And if they can knock that up, why can't they knock a pyramid up? Yeah. Why is no one saying that's aliens? They don't, do they? So there's pyramids. Well, is it because they're built by brown people? You don't think they can do it? Well, that's why this, um, you know, this discovery chips away at the long-held fringe theory that the blocks would be too heavy and the distances would be, you know, too long to travel. So aliens must have built the pyramids. That's terrible. Didn't they roll them along on, on, you know, huge wooden... Yeah, rollers, and they they used boats to transport granite blocks up the Nile Mm -hmm. from where they were being carved out of a cliff somewhere. So they'd be carved into the block, put on the boat, sailed up the Nile, then taken yeah. off. And you oh, know, they, if you've got a few thousand men working on that, yeah, I mean, you could be talking a workforce of ten thousand. Yeah. Well, you could just put some sort of buoyancy aids around, sort of, and string them around it, and actually put them on a boat. You've got to drag them, haven't you? No, they were literally taking one at a time on a on, on a like, boat. Was it I like a canal it. system almost? Oh, There's okay. a lot of boats that were built to specifically transport these blocks of granite, and they would be sailed up the Nile. And then obviously it would sail, but as soon as they dropped off, they'd sail back and just constantly like that. So there's always a steady supply. They might get like 20 granite blocks every two weeks, but it's going to get a lot of time to shift them blocks into position, isn't it? Yeah. So where did the theory of aliens building the pyramids actually come from? So since the late 19th century, science fiction writers have imagined Martians and other alien life forms engaged in great feats of terrestrial engineering. Earlier alien theories surrounding Atlantis may have spawned fantasies about alien building. The most substantial evidence for non-earthly creatures arrived in the wake of G. H. Wells' success. So when he was writing H. G. Wells. Hey, yeah. Mm-hmm. H. G. Wells. Yeah. War of the Worlds. Yeah, War of the Worlds. That's why he was just like, ooh. G. H. G. H. So, yeah, so War of the Worlds. An astronomer and science fiction writer, Garrett P. Seves, penned a quasi-sequel titled Edison's Conquest of Mars in um, 1898 as well, so that guy. So, I think you've Eric von Daniken's the main boy, isn't he? Charge mm-hmm. of the Gods. Charge of the Gods, I own that mm. book. It's complete and utter bollocks. It's very spurious... I have I have read it and it's like I mean all right people believe it but it's like there's you've taken a lot of leaps there in thinking about the in coming from this to that you've taken a big leap and there's no evidence in between it's presented as a scientific book that's the thing that's mm-hmm. it's not presented as theory it's presented as fact and that's why the show Ancient Aliens on the History Channel is always like yes in that oh boy do they take some leaps in that but it always it always words like. Ancient alien, ancient alien theorists believe that, or ancient alien alien theorists postulate, or they think, or you know, mm. yeah, but you're still portraying this as fact. You've got no one speaking there and saying, "Well, actually, that's bollocks." You just had ten thousand dudes pushing uh-huh. a brick. Of course, you know, it's like, no, no, it's aliens. Aliens, gotta be aliens. I, I, I agree with, I do agree with this article. Sorry, Claire, carry on. This guy that wrote the book in the 1898, The Conquest of Mars, um, he points out that the giants of Mars have moved the blocks and built the Great Pyramid. Mm. So, you know, for people reading these things, they don't, you know, there's not 
suppose there's not a lot of literature out. Well, I suppose there was a lot of literature out there. It's just whether you, you know what you get your hands on, I suppose, isn't it? It is. I mean, you, you might have spent all your life reading newspapers and never encountered a book. And next thing you know, you found one on the train and you're reading it, and you think, "Oh my God, this is news!" Here's <laughs> what you don't know. That'd be sensational, isn't but then it? Then you've yeah. heard of books, I guess. It's just whether you know of um, the science fiction mm. genre. Most books are factual at this point, aren't they? Yeah, people will take it as gospel, won't they? Oh, like the Book of Mormon. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> okay, so the popularisation of the theory of alien architects is having um, a basis in science rather than consisting of only fictional musing. Of only fictional musing can be attributed to the Swiss author Eric von Danken. Eric von Daniken. It's not Eric. It is Eric. I bet he says it, Eric. Everyone says Eric von Daniken. Okay. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> it is publication of the book, yeah, Chariot of the Gods, and Unsolved Mysteries of the Past. Originally pub published in German, the subsequently translated into English, it was one of the first popular sold books to suggest extraterrestrial life forms. Not it's humans. difficult, isn't it? Extra, extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life forms. It doesn't get any fucking easier, you know? Structures associated with our ancient civilizations. Honestly, it doesn't get any easier to keep saying extraterrestrial phenomena. Anything no. like that, it does not. I don't know. But Eric von Daniken basically, in that book, sold, my God, how many million copies? Like, ridiculous amounts. People would. Um, it's a bestseller, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a bestseller, absolutely. It's mental because it's got, there's no scientific fact to it. It's just, oh, we found this and I think it does this, so therefore aliens. Yeah, all speculation. Yeah, it's, it's massive speculation. So the questioning of human building projects in Chariots of the Gods remains a, a bedrock for many within the field of pseudo-archaeology. Far from innocuous, these alien theories undermine the agency, archaeology and the in intellect of non-European cultures in Africa and South America, as well as the native peoples in North America, by erasing their achievements. I, I think there's a point to that. Mm. I do, I don't mean to sound woke, because I'm far from woke, but I do think that Machu Picchu is meant to do this immaculately fucking built temple all the, there's no gap between the blocks it's all looks like it's laser precision they're like oh well humans can have done this they're talking about doing it with like primitive steel tools it's like yes we've got some guy doing that fucking job smoothing that block out for 10 fucking years that's his job yeah. you know that's he's, he's got two other guys working on it with him that's what they do that's the that's the scale of this industry you've got building this thing it's not 30 blokes, a couple of cranes and a digger. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's all being done by hand. And I mean, look at the great cathedrals of Europe. You know, Notre Dame, Westminster. Um, there's a few, in, quite a few in Germany. Like all across Europe, these things that took 600, especially Spain. Fuck me, you must have seen a couple mm. of them. You must have been in Spain. You can't go far without seeing a cathedral. The carvings, mm. you know, the stone yeah. carvings. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. You can imagine how long it took a, a you know, a guy to just carve one of the gargoyles or something. Well, that's it, and it might not, that guy might have started it, and his son might have finished it. Mm -hmm. And his son might have carried on working. These things took like 600 years to build. The pyramids were done quickly because they just had the 
well, probably most right with slave labour, mm. but you still had skilled people making it look good. Yep. Remember the pyramids originally had fucking um, golden tips. Yeah. Certainly the Great Pyramid of Giza did. You know, these things were in the world. Did you get that up there? Well, they used a fucking crane. Hmm. The Romans were using cranes and they nicked most of their tech off the Egyptians. It wasn't real gold, was it? Yeah. Was it real gold? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Great Pyramid did. I don't know about the others. This, the others certainly had tips to them, but they weren't. I don't know if they were gold or not. I'll research that. I'll look into that. But yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm with you on this, Ben, yeah. It goes on to say that it's a potent combination of the tabloids, television, you know, yeah. that, that's yeah. all contributed to this, Popular isn't it? culture, yeah. Absolutely. So, and it's a myth, isn't it, that's been propagated? Yeah. I know humanity is flawed, but we're good at certain things, building, exploring, killing each other. Top three, right? I'd put building above killing each other. Certainly building shit to kill each other with. <laughs> Yeah. We're still building. Yeah. Right? We're really good at that. And we're natural explorers. And, and you're telling me that we don't see something. Like, you know what? I'm going to build a fucking 70-foot-tall pyramid yeah. this time. Because I'm the fucking great Khafu and I'm in Flair of Egypt and I want my pyramid to be the biggest. That's it. And you go, okay, I want 10,000 slaves and I want, like, 13,000 skilled artisans and I want a fucking... I want this to look at the bollocks. And you might not That's even see... you have narcissistic psychopaths... Legion inbred as well. <laughs> they, were, they were gods, Mike. They were gods. Gods on earth. <laughs> Alien gods. Probably. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> they but, are. But, but as for like lifting blocks up with anti-grav stuff and putting it in place, I, I think that's bollocks. I really do. And I, I do think like that article said, I think there is an element of racism there. For thousands of years ahead of where Britain was, where America was, where anyone in Europe, we were running around in caves and furs, and these guys had, you know, stone buildings and systems of power and parliament and government and organised armies and like, having empires. And you're telling me they can't build a pyramid mm. with enough people? They, they worked the problem, didn't they? Just like we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Alright, should we end the show on some fucked up facts then? Yeah, kind of jingle. Facts, facts, fucked up facts, 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 facts. Meerkats. Facts. Fuck off. Meerkats are the most murderous animals on earth. Well, I never trust a meerkat. They do spring up quite quickly, don't they? They're, you know, looking out for their clan. Yeah, are they, are they looking at their clan or are they killing their young? No, I think it's the insects that they eat. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's oh. straight all well, over it. Yeah. eating it. Well, I they were like killing other clans or there was a like, meerkat turf wars. There must be, wasn't that? Uh, maybe that's what it is then. There was another that show on like meerkat gangs and they followed a couple of them around and like I said, their fortunes rose and fell. I've seen that. One like, had little red bandanas and the other one had like, <laughs> little orange ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. One group got a bunch of pistols and then the other group <laughs> got really lucky and raided a DAA warehouse and got a bunch of M16s and it was game over. <laughs> game over for the orange head baddie meerkats. Yeah. yeah, it's a shame. So we've really built up some strong flaw with the characters and some development. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dave was going to get out of all that. He wasn't interested anymore, but he was gunned down on his last day. Yeah. Yeah, poor Dave. <laughs>
The gene that makes small dogs small also appears to make them more feisty. I can believe it. Yeah, for definite, my Frenchie. Both your Frenchies. No, oh, Stella's not too bad, is she? No, Stella's good. Huh? Yeah, both she. Oh, no. She has to go up to another dog and put her paw on its back to assert dominance. No way. She doesn't tend to do it with big dogs, but smaller dogs, and if they don't bow, oh dear. You're getting, you know, a little underbite in your face when you can't even bite you. <laughs> <laughs> my, my Max is just turning half stone. You know, he's a dog to Bordeaux cross Rottweiler. And, yeah, yeah, the amount of little dogs that I get asked in me while he's just, like, stinking by my side, trotting on. <laughs> he gets more excited when bigger dogs ever go out and the little ones. He's just like, off with that. Yeah. Uh, most of the bacteria found during a recent study of the microbiome of the London Underground were previously unknown to science. Oh, that's creepy, that's weird. Yeah. What, are they, what are they releasing? <laughs> so what, all the skin cells, all the nasties, everything that goes flying through the London Underground has... Harbouring bacteria? It's ha yeah. It was uh, unknown to science, most of it was. Well, I suppose, like, smackhead Jeff Sink's got to be fucking pretty new yeah. to science. But there's a lot of germs on the underground, isn't there? People oh, yeah. yeah they, are they That's mutated, then, or what? Or they've all mixed together and mutated to, to become some sort of, like, London virus? Didn't you hear about the giant... There's so many that there was a lot that was just unknown. I don't, I don't know. Shit. Didn't you hear about the giant blob of germs that attacked the London underground a few years ago? <laughs> Was beaten up by the police and army. army. <laughs> most bacteria. Was <laughs> that a dream? Most, ba most bacteria is harmless. In fact, we need bacteria to survive. Mm -hmm. We didn't have it, we would die. Probiotics, my friend. Yeah. Friends. Mm -hmm. Probiotics. Thank me later. Lacewing larvae knock out termites with toxic flatulence. <laughs> well, let's see who's the fucking <laughs> see who's the king in this scenario. Yeah. I'm coming against you, <laughs> James Joyce. There he is. No. Is he an author? Yeah. Believed he would recognise his wife Nora's fart anywhere, and would quote pick hers out in a room full of farting women. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's. Oh, I don't get the feeling he spent a lot of time rimming Nora. I know, I Well, that many guffs in the face. Yeah, there's something going on with that in their private life, well, the fact that he can pick up their farts. Oh, she just had really bad flatulence mm. all the time. Maybe, I mean, there probably was a very heavy cabbage-based diet at the time, I'd imagine. What, what year was this, James Joyce? What did it say? No, it doesn't. No, no either I'm, way. We're revealing our ignorance for not knowing. Yeah. As I always listen to your other research, <laughs> you can find out. But either way, maybe his wife just had really bad flatulence, or maybe there was something kinky going on with her. Mm -hmm. well, maybe she had, like, you know, just a really unique sound pop. Possibly. <laughs> maybe. According to the UK Deed Poll Service, every week at least one person requests danger as a middle name. <laughs> oh, why the fuck not? <laughs> And if my last name was Zone, oh. I'd be fucking loving it. I mean, Kenny Danger Zone. Was it Kenny, Kenny Loggins who Danger Zone, wasn't it? I love that fucking song. Danger Zone. Talking about 
put danger was your middle name. Yeah, but I'd be like Kenny, Danger Zone. Oh, not Ben. Nah, nah, nah. No, you could be Kenny from now on. Kenny, Danger Zone. You can change your back after 30 days. It's not a problem, really. <laughs> you just gonna go, your bank card's changed. <laughs> it's, 30, it's just 30 quid. In fact, I'm going to change my name to Kenny Danger Zone. Almost 1.69 million Britons have three or more nipples. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, That's one in 60, isn't it? One in 50. What was it again? 1.69 million. 1.69 million, yes, it's roughly one in 60, roughly ish. Well, one in 50, yeah, you've got even uh, One in 60 people are freaks. That's <laughs> <laughs> the witch trials, that's extraction. <laughs> <laughs> you got a third nipple and it's like, yeah, so mm-hmm. one in six jobbers, shut up, freak! Mm-hmm. <laughs> I only ever seen one person with uh, three nipples. Scaramanga! <laughs> <laughs> one of the best, the best Roger Moore film, in my opinion, The Man with the Golden Gun. Mm. I read an article today, right, where this woman had started lactating out of her armpit. She just had a kid. Yeah. And she was breastfeeding and she was like, I've got this lump under my armpit and if I squeeze it, the stuff comes out and it was milk. No way. Yeah. She didn't even know, she apparently the, during pregnancy, too much milk's produced, sometimes the gland will spread around under your armpit. Cool. That's like a really rare condition, but it can happen apparently. <laughs> and she was lactating wow. under her armpit. Maybe if there's a, there was a third nipple there she didn't know about. Yeah. The gland could have been connected maybe, I don't know, but yeah. If an election in New Mexico is tied, mm-hmm. the two candidates play a single hand of poker as a tiebreaker. Love it. That's great. Mm-hmm. That is ace, I love that. If that's state law, that should be applauded. Mm-hmm. What about this federal law? It is against US federal law to correspond with a pirate. Ah, well that's me, I can't go to America. Does um, internet piracy count as corresponding with a pirate? I guess so. Oh, bugger. <laughs> I was sitting there filling out the green card on the way into New York, JFK Airport in New York. Have you ever caused one of the pirates? He's like, LimeWire. <laughs> <laughs> pirate Bay. I was thinking Pirate Bay. <laughs> oh, bugger. Speaking of Pirate Bay movies, does anyone know why... There is a disclaimer in every film that says any similarity to actual persons living or dead or actual events is purely coincidental. I'm going to guess it's so that, let's say they did a World War II movie and some hero, like, shot up a load of Nazis, like, in cold blood. Now they could say, even though he's got the same name, it's like, it's not him, this is a fictionalised account. You're so fucking close. So they can't be sued, basically. Yeah. You're so close. It is a murderer. Yeah. But it's a bit earlier than World War Two, nineteen thirty-three. Rasputin's murderer. Oh oh man, what was his name? He's uh Baron But he sued MGM for libel in inaccurately depicting the events that led to Rasputin's death. Oh the murderer sued the movie company. We get the details wrong. Well there was a group of six of Rasputin and he's gonna be an episode one day. And they like Poisoned him, got him drunk, poisoned him a bit more. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Shot him, bashed his head in with a dumbbell, threw him in the river. Yeah, he was really dead when he hit the water, to be fair, but then this myth grew up. But, you know, rah, rah, Rasputin. 
Well, someone wasn't happy with the Titanic's the depiction, wasn't it? That's the right. That, the, the, like, that shot himself. Cap, of Lieutenant, or First Officer Murphy or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, he shot himself because he shot that guy and that never happened. Yeah. Or oh, certainly no one ever saw it happen if it did happen. It's none of the accounts uh-huh. given. And they were like, hang on, he didn't do that. And, and James Cameron, who produced it, kind of sucked them off in the media for a little bit and said, sorry, it was all for theatrics. So, yeah. I bet it got a bit crazy on the Titanic at the last, you know. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll finish with this one. After Mo Salah joined Liverpool. Right, football quote, okay. Yeah, hate crimes against Muslims in the Liverpool area dropped 16%. Wow. That's good, isn't it? Mm. And that's what I never get about racism in football. Because if, like, you're a football fan, there's a famous clip, it's a viral clip, you can find it on the internet, it's like a West Ham fan. He was talking about immigration and he's like, oh, they're taking all our jobs on there though. And you're like, you would not give a shit if Lionel Messi signed for West Ham mm-hmm. tomorrow. You wouldn't be talking about immigration then. Yeah. You know, he'd be, even though you know, he's Argentinian, he's come from from living in Spain and you wouldn't fucking give a shit if going to come in to take an Englishman's job then, would you? No. It's, how can a football fan be racist? It makes no sense to mm-hmm. me because you're like, he's a fucking footballer, he's going to be playing for your team one day. And you'll fucking love him then, so what's, what's it matter? Look at the abuse that was got, the, the boys got in the, after missing the penalties. Oh, it's taking it. Yeah. You know, like, well, if you'd have scored them, you'd have been calling them heroes and praising them. Racists have been emboldened because there's one in the. I was going to say the White House, but in number 10. Yeah. There was one in the White House. Yeah. Well, it still is, to be fair. I'm not convinced Biden isn't. Oh, Biden, mate. Oh, he's got a really sketchy mm. past with the with the race issue. He yeah. came out as he came out as being all BLM, but 30 years previously, he'd signed a bill to continue segregation in public offices, busing, isn't it? and buses and things like that. He was well School he, buses. I think it was. He was well up for it. He was well up for the apartheid. You know? yeah. So it's only because Obama's his mate, he's kind of lost that. <laughs> Obviously, but he knows which side his bread's buttered, doesn't he? Like Trump did. Like, you know, his, his, his uh, bread was buttered with the religious lunatics who think he's the second coming. And the racists. And the racists, whereas Biden knows that his bread's buttered with the, the woke. Yeah. And, the, and the, the liberals, even though he is clearly not. Nah, I said right, mate. No, of course, he's, the conservatives have more right and less right, and that's it, don't they? Same as us nowadays, really. Yep. Centre. Glad you agree. Labour's gone centre right. Centre and. Blairism um, back. So I get to say I don't care. We'll still be better than the Tories. We can work on that. We can work that on where we. St- we can work on this. We can work on where we stand. We kind of, uh, you know, we got to get in first. That's the main thing. Uh, you're deluded if you think Blairism's the way. I'm not saying it's the way. I'm just saying that we can work on it from within the party. We won't get in power. I'm well, we've got to get in the. We've got to get in power. Give them the illusion of it at least. Win the voters back. Give them the illusion of it, it and isn't, then bring it in isn't what you're doing. It isn't anymore. Blairism's dead. Mate, in my mind, it's always 1997. <laughs> 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 that bombshell. <laughs> Revelation. <laughs> it's t- as you know, I was in school in 1997, so no, that wasn't. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. I am Ben. Don't drink the flavour, don't drink the cool, and follow us on Facebook, Cutting the Ball in the Post to the Apocalypse. 
YouTube is Apocalypse Bull. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud. Country to the Bull on the PTA. Country to the Bull on the PTA. Um, you can find us on pretty much most sites where you can get a podcast. So give us a give us a listen, give us a follow, give us a subscribe. Head to the Facebook page if you like funny memes. Very true. Go there. It's cool. Okay, I've been Mike. Thanks for listening. Peace out. May the force be with you. And I've been Claire. Keep an open mind, but not so open that it's still out your ears, guys.